Welcome to Fishman Radio. I'm Bryce Tapp, your host, and today my conversation with Fishman's Executive Director, Brian Sutliff. Today we'll be discussing the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and its two topics, the Syrian refugee crisis and the Rakhine State. Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Bryce. Thank you very much. I hope that you and your family and your community are all doing well. And again, always want to reiterate our best wishes to the delegates, advisors, staff, members of the board of directors, and the broader fisherman community. All that we hope to accomplish can only be done when we're able to work in conjunction with all of you, and we hope that everyone's safe and healthy throughout this time period. Absolutely. Absolutely. I send those well wishes to everyone listening as well. And so we have two topics, one which was last year's Security Council crisis, the Rakhine State, and then also a topic that's been recurring in numerous fishermen committees, which is Syrian refugees. Um, and so, Brian, let's start with Rakhine, with the Rakhine State. So if you could give delegates and listeners and our advisors and our staff, you know, sort of an update about how this topic fits in with the UNHCR's mandate, um, and maybe perhaps this to draw a distinction between this topic as a Security Council crisis and this topic as a humanitarian security um, issue. Great, thank you, Bryce, for those questions. First, in terms of your last question there about drawing a distinction between having this topic as we did at Fishman 41 as a UN Security Council crisis topic versus having it in the UN High Commissioner for Refugees or the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR or OHCHR cannot address it quite the same way the Security Council can. Only the Security Council has those legally enforceable powers under Chapter 7 Enforcement Articles under the UN Charter. So the UNHCR obviously is working a lot more instead of perhaps deploying any sort of ideas of a peacekeeping mission or monitors, etc. They're looking a lot more at funding issues in some cases for the refugee camps and services, also for internally displaced persons. They're also trying to work in a very interagency coordination network that's very prominent within the UN system. The Security Council does so as well, but Security Council in a sense has that power to mandate, to require something that no other UN agency truly can under international law. So the UNHCR has to really, really work with governments, many of which are reluctant to take in refugees or are leery and or suspicious. And now the work of the UNHCR or the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees is only made more difficult in the context of COVID-19. Bangladesh has, in many instances, not wanted to really take in a lot of the Rakhine state and other refugees out of Myanmar in the first place. Myanmar obviously arguing that in many cases the Rakhine people or some of the people from Rakhine state are not in fact members of Myanmar themselves. They're not citizens, the Rohingya community, etc. And now you have these arguments which are not new, but would be exacerbated in this context that refugees could in fact bring infection. It could bring disease, etc. in the context. And you're going to, you've already seen and you will continue to see governments arguing that 
keeping refugees out is just an important humanitarian security measure for their own populations. And that this is only made worse by COVID-19. But governments also have responsibilities and they have legal requirements based upon treaties and other obligations and their own laws that they've signed. And uh, again, treaties and conventions they've signed on to and agreed to abide by in terms of the rights of refugees. And also, even if they don't take the refugees in themselves, they cannot return them to places where they're in imminent danger for their lives and for immediate persecution and harm. And many of the Rohingya would certainly be in danger. It could, could, clearly demonstrate a concern, legitimate concern for their lives in Rakhine State and in Myanmar. And honestly, where right now would they not, you know, also need to be concerned about the prevalence of COVID-19 in a number of these situations and the medical facilities there? I mean, that's going to be a big part of what the UNHCR needs to do. It already has been an issue for the UNHCR trying to provide emergency medical care and humanitarian relief to refugees and internally displaced persons. But now in the midst of COVID-19, it's only heightened in terms of its importance. So I hope that addressed, you know, some of the questions that you had there. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate that. And so, you know, as you talked about that sort of interagency cooperation within the UN that the UNHCR so excellently does in so many of their facilities around the world, um, you know, I was thinking if you could also speak more to what that looks like in cultivating um, solutions um, that the delegates will inevitably have to come up with during their deliberations. Great. Thank you for those questions, Bryce. The UNHCR, first and foremost, and this is always a tough part of of any sort of model UN conference, really does have to delve into requests for finances. They really do have to reiterate some of those requests. But I don't want the delegates to have to spend enormous amounts of time because the UNHCR has already put out those requests. They've already put them out there. So I think one of the very first things in some of the resolutions would be to just reiterate to countries the importance of meeting their pledges and meeting the obligations that they already have. They might add an additional appeal if they feel that's necessary, but I don't really don't want them to be bogged down trying to figure out how much money to request here. Because again, the Office of the High Commissioner for Refugees has already done so. These emergency appeals are already out there. So it's much more of a factor of how do you get governments to actually come through with that money, particularly in the midst of a situation where not only are countries now fighting COVID-19 or trying to combat it, trying to resolve these situations, but then have also a global recession tied to the pandemic or resulting in some cases from the pandemic and some of the lockdown measures and quarantine measures, as well as reduced incomes, et cetera, and reduced state capacity in light of this. But it's also critical that the delegates be very familiar with the needs of the refugee communities, the internally displaced persons. And one of the issues that always comes up, or I think is a, a very frequent issue in terms of refugee populations, is having refugees register in the new country of origin and, and with the UNHCR, which is really important in many ways. But many of them are quite reluctant to register with the authorities of the new government as also with the UNHCR because they're worried. Will this information be turned over to someone who misuses it? Will this be used to target them in some way? Will this be used? 
to focus on some specific aspect of their identity or will certain countries say, oh, well, you have to identify as this particular group rather than how the people themselves see themselves, how they identify and in a lot of cases. And so that's another really big issue. I mean, again, we have so many instances in, say, Rakhine State of people lived right next door to each other. And then suddenly you're now this you're these Bengalis or you're this other ethnic group that doesn't belong here and never has been part of Myanmar, even though your family's lived here as long as mine has or even longer, et cetera, and how these tensions get exacerbated and built up in many instances and then turn into violence and turn into expulsion and instances of what has sometimes been called ethnic cleansing in the most extreme cases, obviously, into genocide itself. And you've certainly also seen in the case of Myanmar and Rakhine State and the Rohingya community, people like the Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, basically saying they're not part of this country. They've never been part of this country, et cetera. And then a lot of other people saying, wait a second, how is a Nobel Prize laureate now essentially backing this military government's policies, a military government that she herself protested against for decades and under whom she suffered house arrest, et cetera. So I think there's been, particularly with this particular refugee community, a lot of concerns about how thoroughly politicized it has become in many instances, particularly for the government of Myanmar, and how very angrily the government of Myanmar asserts that the the Rakhine community, the Rohingya community, is not part of Myanmar itself. So... I hope delegates do understand some of these larger historical issues, but I hope that they don't get too bogged down in some of the most recent rhetoric and they focus really on the needs of the refugees and internally displaced persons. Because I think this is one of those committees too, where we're talking about really immediate issues. We're talking about truly tangible concerns of refugees for necessary items for food, for humanitarian relief, for blankets and shelter. Will they be allowed to go to school? Will they be provided nasal swabs and testing for COVID-19? If and when a vaccine is available, will refugees and internally displaced persons be considered amongst those most vulnerable populations who need to receive this, particularly at low or no cost in a lot of cases? And we don't want to get too far of our headers ourselves because obviously we don't have a vaccine at this time. But in the context of development, those are issues that should be considered as well. And the UNHCR has to really address those. But I would say that one of the things that they need to, delegates need to focus on is how do you get countries to honor the commitments they've already made and remind them of those commitments they've already made.
Thank you, Brian. And our next topic for the UNHCR is going to be on Syrian refugees. Um, and so my first year directing the Security Council, this was a the situation in Syria was actually the topic that, um, you know, the delegates and I discussed. And so, you know, in that conversation, it was a very much a security oriented um, topic. Um, but as you as we've seen, you know, obviously, you know, security issues still remain. Um, but even after a war ends, you know, refugee and displaced populations still maintain the most important and dire needs um, present for the UN system. And so I was wondering if you could talk about, similar to how you talked about the Rakhine State, how Syrian refugees will be a similar topic for some students and staff, but also a new topic within the context of the UNHCR. Yes, thank you, Bryce, for that. The, the topic of Syrian refugees is one that's definitely vexing because you're now looking at the Syrian civil war going into essentially its 10th year, you know, starting in, in 2011 and now really, you know, moving towards nearly a decade. And every time that there's this declaration that, oh, the fighting's just about over, then we see it flare up in another area and we see more conflict develop in a number of cases. Even again, in the context of COVID-19, fighting continues in several regions within Syria. And you've obviously seen also some real concerns in terms of the relationships between Turkey, Russia, the United States, in terms of Turkey dealing with some of the Syrian Kurds and their own Kurdish population in the south of Turkey, you know, the mountain Turks or, you know, the various designations they use and sometimes even saying they're not actually Turks themselves etc. They don't belong within Turkey. Obviously, having labeled the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, a terrorist organization for a number of decades, seeing you know, the United States and, and the Russian Federation you know, involved in all of this. Obviously, you've seen the involvement of the Islamic State at various points of Al-Qaeda and a whole variety of other organizations. And so now you've seen an exodus of millions of Syrians, three million plus into Turkey, uh, Syrians going into Iraq, whereas previously it was Iraqis fleeing into Syria. You've seen, obviously, Syrians flooding into Lebanon, into Jordan, and obviously a number trying to reach the European Union, even occasionally the United States and Canada, other parts of the world, you know, really trying to reach so many other destinations and to leave. And obviously you've seen a number of them die at sea. You've seen them obviously being attacked in some instances, and one of the issues, too, that I think we often forget about with some of these refugee communities is they can also then spark future conflicts. To me, one of the classics was sadly the end of the Rwandan conflict and civil war and genocide in 1994 when the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, chased out the former governments and some of the inter-Hamway militias, et cetera, and they went into what is now Democratic Republic of Congo and a number of other countries, they used the refugee camps then, the inter-Hamway and others, to then launch further attacks back into Rwanda and set off further wars, including some of the wars in the DRC, in Burundi, in Rwanda, and elsewhere. And one of my concerns would be that many of the Syrian refugee populations they may at some point strive to re-enter Syria 
and in some cases, potentially in a violent manner. They're, I think most of the refugees just want to be able to return to their places of origin. They just want to be free from attacks and violence. But I think there will be elements that are more radicalized, that are are very angry, understandably in some instances, and very legitimately grieved. And then when they return to, one of the other issues is where do they return to? Their homes have, in many instances, either been destroyed or been taken over by someone else. Sometimes they were used to reward supporters of the regime. So there are a lot of concerns there that I think escalate. I also think, too, again, in the context of COVID-19, refugee populations could be very, very vulnerable populations for spreading a disease or virus like COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, and you could see that spread into the broader community. You could see it spread amongst the personnel working in refugee camps themselves, medical personnel, security personnel, et cetera, and then spreading around the world yet again. So I think you're going to see this. And my concern also for a lot of Syrian refugees is, especially if they're if people worry about them as a vector for transmission of COVID-19, they will be refused entry into these places. But where are they going to go? They're obviously still within you know, enormous danger in Syria in many instances, and they don't have protection there. But then these other countries refuse to let them in. And obviously, a lot of the wealthier countries in the world definitely are not taking large numbers of Syrian refugees. They're, in fact, ensuring that they cannot move to those countries or settle there or seek asylum in them. So I think that really looking at a moment where there is a growing need and shrinking resources and shrinking will to provide the resources that do exist. And that to me is a real tragedy, particularly in the light of the decades that it will take to really rebuild Syria whenever this war is over and, and potentially after, you know, the Assad regime is perhaps out of power, or if they maintain power or their allies continue in power, it's still going to take decades to rebuild Syria and to make it safe for a lot of these refugees to return. And I think that's one other aspect I would emphasize for delegates is that it needs to be timely, safe, and voluntary repatriation for refugees. And I think that voluntary part might be the trickiest of all, but the safe part is right up there as well. You know, talking about that voluntary and that safe repatriation, how would you advise delegates to stay within that humanitarian mindset to addressing the needs within Syria and also outside of Syria of refugees populations? Um, and how would you how would you advise them to perhaps step back from addressing security concerns um, in their committee topics? You know, as they are UNHCR, um, so they do have a very very focused mandate as a committee. So what advice would you give for them um, in that regard? Thank you for those questions, Bryce. I would say focus on what is really achievable because by providing relief, by ensuring that relief gets to people, you're making positive differences in their lives and positive differences that can be seen, that can be measured, that can be observed, that can be furthered. And in a timely fashion, because we often commit ourselves to courses of action, but then become dissatisfied that the course of action is not being obtained quickly enough, is not being obtained 
in a timely fashion. And the distribution of these supplies really could be done in a number of instances in a more timely fashion. And working with a number of the governments to ensure that the refugee populations and internally displaced persons are being treated humanely, their rights are being honored, that governments remind themselves of their commitments under the relevant international agreements, resolutions, treaties, et cetera, and then really focus on tangible outcomes and achievements, including ensuring that funding is committed and that as actually received, getting countries to sign on to agreements that maybe previously they had abstained from them or in a few instances may have voted against, but perhaps now they see the issue a little differently and maybe getting universal adherence and acceptance. And I think those are some of the real critical elements of some of the resolutions that the delegates will want to pass that will have concrete and tangible results on the ground for people and will also give the committee a, a better sense of momentum and continuing positivity rather than getting bogged down in the seemingly relentless drumbeat of negative news and of challenges and tragedies. Thank you, Brian. That's excellent advice for all of our delegates and our staff as well. And so, you know, as we come to a close of this conversation about the UNHCR, I was wondering if you had any um, advice or any support that you would give our delegates in their research and our staff as well in their research um, to support their investigations of these topics and also their um, brainstorming for solutions of these topics. Yes, thank you, Bryce, for those final questions. Read broadly and deeply. Make sure that you are familiar with the various perspectives that will come into all this, including hearing some of the testimonies of refugees, of internally displaced persons. You know, maybe read some of the accounts of what the camps are really like and get a sense of the challenges that are being presented, but also the positive elements, the progress that can be achieved and remembering the international agreements and commitments that are already out there and really achieving universal adherence to those agreements and commitments, even in the context of COVID-19. They're, I think, even more essential to continue to honor international agreements and commitments in the context of this pandemic, and that will pay dividends down the road. So I think those are the ways to really focus on it and to keep reading good, reliable sources that also represent a broad diversity of viewpoints and particularly national perspectives. Okay, well, thank you so much. And, you know, we wish our delegates well and our staff well and all of their research and preparation work. So take care, Brian. You too, Bryce. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our audience for listening, for taking time out of your busy schedules to partake in all of this. And we thank you for the support that you've shown us over the years and we just can't wait to connect with you again both in person and remotely so thank you be safe be well and we hope to convene with you very soon thanks for listening to this episode of fishman radio be sure to follow us on twitter and like us on facebook you can find this episode and many others on our website, fishman.org, and wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and share today.